Well, thank you for once again joining me as we continue in our study through the book of Genesis. I'm your host, Randy Duncan, and in this episode, we are beginning chapter 7, which will see Noah and his family board the ark. But before we get into that, as a reminder, in the last episode, we had a discussion regarding the ark itself, what it was constructed of, its size, etc. We also discussed how many people still have a childlike understanding of the ark, and that there's a need to move beyond that sort of babyish understanding to one that is more realistic, one that's more scriptural. Which brings us now to chapter 7. Now one note before we get started with this discussion, this is an episode where you need to keep your preconceived notions in check somewhat, and let's see what the text actually says, particularly as it relates to the extent of the flood. Remember, one of the barriers to truth is the presumption that you already have it. And with that, we begin chapter 7. Verse 1 says, Then the Lord said to Noah, Go into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Now we discussed in an earlier episode the fact that God viewed Noah as being righteous. Now some people try to interpret this verse as saying that Noah was, quote, perfect in his generations. And what they're getting at is the thought that Noah's line, his family, was perfect in a gene pool sense meaning that they were not infected with the gene pool problem associated with the Nephilim. Now, the folks that espouse this theory put forth the theory that one of the reasons, if not the main reason, for the flood was to wipe out humanity because they had been infected with the fallen angels and the Nephilim. And so the flood was the remedy for this infected gene pool. And Noah's family was the only one not infected, which is why they say that a proper interpretation is that Noah was, quote, perfect in his generations. Now, this is definitely a very minority position, and I mention it only so you're aware that that thought is out there. So here's a question for you. How many of each animal did Noah take into the ark? Two? Well, Listen to what that text actually says here in verses 2 and 3. Take with you seven pairs of all clean animals, the male and his mate, and a pair of the animals that are not clean, the male and his mate, and seven pairs of the birds of the heavens also, male and female, to keep their offspring alive on the face of all the earth. So, how many of each animal did Noah take on the ark? What we see here is, is that although the initial instructions are for two of each animal to be taken on board the ark, when more specific instructions are given, we see that one pair of the clean animals is to be taken, while seven pairs of unclean animals are to be taken. Now, one of the reasons is that the extra, the unclean animals, would have allowed extra for sacrifices once they disembarked. Verses 4 and 5 now. For in seven days I will send rain on the earth, forty days and forty nights. And every living thing that I have made, I will blot out from the face of the ground. And Noah did all that the Lord had commanded him. A couple of things to mention here. God seems to be giving Noah seven days to get the animals on board the ark, although Noah and his family will not board until the rain actually begins. We also see here mention, once again, the 40 days and 40 nights. 
Now, everyone who is familiar with the story of Noah's Ark and the Flood knows that it rained for 40 days and 40 nights. However, as I mentioned in an earlier episode, the number 40 is used many times in Scripture, and it's a conventional number used to describe a time of testing or the introduction of a, of a new age, so to speak. In some cases, the number 40 may actually have been 40 days. However, we need to be aware that Scripture consistently uses 40 as a time of testing, whatever the actual number of days. Now, a few examples are Moses is on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Israel's spies are in the wilderness for 40 days. God sentences Israel to 40 years in the wilderness. Jesus was tempted and he fasted in the wilderness for 40 days. Christ appeared to his disciples for 40 days before his ascension. And then here, we see that it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. Again, 40 may be the actual number, but it appears that the number 40 is symbolic for a time of testing and preparation that God has ordained. So let's move to verses 6 through 10. And verse 6 begins, Noah was 600 years old when the flood of waters came upon the earth. And Noah and his sons and his wife and his son's wife with him went into the ark to escape the waters of the flood. Of clean animals and of animals that are not clean and of birds and of everything that creeps on the ground, two and two, male and female, went into the ark with Noah as God had commanded Noah. And after seven days, the waters of the flood came upon the earth. So here's just a, a recap of what we've discussed to this point with the added information that the flood came when Noah was 600 years old. If you remember, we also discussed in a previous episode the long lifespans recorded in chapter 5. But after the flood, we see the lifespans drop dramatically and bottom out to about what we would consider normal even for modern times. Remember also, God had already declared that humans would not live more than about 120 years from then on, and that is exactly what we see recorded. So I'm going to simply read verses 11 through 16, which again is sort of a, a rehashing of the information that we have already been given. And verse 11 begins, In the 600 year of Noah's life, in the second month, on the 17th day of the month, on that day all the fountains of the great deep burst forth, and the windows of the heavens were opened, and rain fell upon the earth forty days and forty nights. On the very day Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of his sons with them entered the ark, they and every beast according to its kind, and all the livestock according to their kinds, and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth according to its kind, and every bird according to its kind, every winged creature. They went into the ark with Noah, two and two of all flesh in which there was the breath of life, and those that entered male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. Now, we've already discussed most of the information given in those verses, except for a couple of noteworthy items. First, notice that the exact date is given when the flood began. The 600 year of Noah, the second month, the 17th day of the month, and this provides some historic credibility and invest in and marks the story with unique importance. Second thing to point out here is that it wasn't just rain that provided the floodwaters 
There's a big misunderstanding about that, it seems. It says that the fountains of the deep burst forth along with the rain. In the last portion of verse 16 where it says, And the Lord shut him in. So who closed the door of the ark? God did. It is sort of an act that speaks of divine protection. Remember also from last episode, Jesus said in John 10, 9, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. Jesus said he was the only way to be saved. And likewise, there was only one door to the ark, one way to enter the ark, one way to be saved. The only means of salvation was on this one ark through this one door. But I want to move now into a discussion concerning the extent of the flood, which will be the primary focus in this episode. So I think what I'll do is go ahead and just finish reading verses 17 through 24, finish out the chapter, and then go back and weave these verses into the conversation regarding the flood itself. So verse 17 begins, And the flood continued forty days on the earth. The waters increased and bore up the ark, and it rose high above the earth. The waters prevailed and increased greatly on the earth, and the ark floated on the face of the waters. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed above the mountains, covering them fifteen cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth, birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarm on the earth, and all mankind. Everything on the dry land, in whose nostrils was the breath of life, died. He blotted out every living thing that was on the face of the ground, man and animals and creeping things and birds of the heavens. They were blotted out from the earth. Only Noah was left and those who were with him in the ark. And the waters prevailed on the earth a hundred and fifty days. So with that, I want to move into a discussion about the extent of the flood. In other words, was it a global flood that covered the entire planet or was it something else? Most people assume that the only two options are the flood was either local or it was global. But that would be a false dichotomy. That's not the only two choices we have. The flood could have been regional, or it could have been universal, at least relative to the known world at that time. So when we say global flood, what is it that we mean? Now this is the most extreme position, and people who believe in a global flood believe that water covered the entire planet to a height that was 22 feet higher than the highest mountain. Then you have people that believe, well, maybe it was just a regional flood, an extensive regional flood, but it was still contained to an area that was around the Mediterranean Basin and the Black Sea and and the Tigris-Euphrates Valley. Other people believe that the flood covered only the, quote, known world. The flood was universal relative to the known world of the people of the Old Testament at that time. In other words, this was a massive flood but it didn't include other continents or areas of the world like, say, China. And then finally, again, there's people that believe that the flood was only a local flood, and it just wiped out several towns along the river. So let me first go ahead and dismiss the idea that this was a local flood. I mean, there are many reasons for doing so that I just don't have time to go into here, but also because I just simply don't know of many people who actually believe that. And I think maybe the best way to approach this discussion is to take a look at it from two different perspectives. I think we can look at it from a biblical perspective as well as from a scientific perspective. 
Remember, God is the author of both Scripture and nature, but he's not the author of confusion. So anytime our interpretation doesn't align with either Scripture or nature, our interpretation of either one or both of them is incorrect. So let's begin with a look from Scripture. And in doing so, we need to see what the language of the text actually demands. And I think with this particular issue, there are a few primary textual issues that we need to investigate. The first one is what is referred to as, quote, universal language. And it may sound strange to say, but the word all is not always absolute in biblical usage. Now, I touched on some examples of this in the last episode. So, for example, in Genesis 41, verse 57, remember, Joseph opens up the storehouses in Egypt and, quote, all of the countries came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph because the famine was severe in all the world. Now, I don't know of anyone who tries to argue that people came from Australia or North America to buy grain from Joseph. Another example is found in 1 Kings 4.34, where it says that men of all nations came to listen to Solomon's wisdom. And then again in 1 Kings 10.24, it adds that the whole earth sought audience with Solomon to hear the wisdom God put in his heart. But in two other places, we read that people came as far away as Sheba and Arabia. Now, this would extend out about 1,300 miles from Jerusalem, but that's far short of the entire world. Again, these are only two examples, but there are others. The point is that when we read phrases such as the, quote, entire heavens and the face of the earth and the whole earth, etc., we need to read them from the perspective of ancient people as they would have understood them to mean, and from their frame of reference, not necessarily ours. And the reality is that these phrases don't always refer to the entire planet. We just saw that. In fact, the Hebrew word for earth, Erez, is the fourth most frequently used noun in the Old Testament. And although it can mean the entire earth, it most often refers to a specific territory or a specific land area. And so we see that just as in these other examples, we're not required by the biblical text to impose an interpretation that the floodwaters covered the entire planet. You know, it's easy for us today to think in global terms, but that wasn't necessarily the case for ancient peoples. To them, the world often meant the people and the land meant the ground under their feet, stretching from horizon to horizon. And the highest mountains would have been those within sight or, or even within walking distance for them. I mean, if you think about it too, in order to wipe out humanity, God wouldn't have needed to cover the entire earth with water because people hadn't yet spread out from one another. In fact, it's not until chapter 11 that God steps in at the Tower of Babel and he forces people to spread out over the entire earth. Up until then, they had continued to ignore God's command to multiply and fill the earth, and they had remained in that same geographic area. The next textual issue concerns the water, quote, covering the mountains. Specifically, I want to point out the word for covered. Now, the Hebrew verb form used here can be used for a, for a wide variety of possibilities of coverings. There are about 15 or so examples of this verb being used to describe something being covered in water, but three of them describe something other than being completely submerged in water. For example, Malachi 2.13 says, 
You cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. This doesn't mean that the altar is completely submerged in tears, and yet that's the same Hebrew word we find used for the mountains being covered. Even today, in our modern English, we often say that someone is drenched or covered with water, but we don't mean that they're completely submerged under water. And so again, the text allows for an interpretation that does not demand that the mountains be submerged under water, but just that they were drenched. One more textual issue to discuss is the 15 cubits above. Remember, verse 20 said that the waters covered the mountains by 15 cubits, which would be about 22 feet. So what can we make of that? Well, the Hebrew actually says that 15 cubits from above rose the waters, and the mountains were covered. Well, we already discussed that covered part. Regarding the Hebrew word under consideration here, I'll spare you the grammar lesson, but a better translation is that the waters rose up or spread upward 22 feet from the plain, covering or drenching at least part of the mountains. So just looking at the biblical text without considering any scientific data a compelling case can be made that Scripture makes the case for a worldwide event as far as humanity goes, but less than global with respect to the geography. In other words, worldwide so as to wipe out all of humanity where they lived, but not having to cover the entire planet since humans hadn't yet spread out over all the earth. So let's shift gears for a minute and look at the possibility of a global flood from a scientific standpoint. Now let me first start by addressing one of the most obvious challenges for this model, which is the amount of water required. Again, a global flood model, as it is mostly defined, argues that water covered the entire planet as well as covered the highest mountains by 22 feet. Now, some people interpret Noah's Ark as coming to rest on the very top of Mount Ararat, which is right at 17,000 feet tall. We'll actually discuss this in the next episode. But this would mean that the water would have had to have risen to 17,000 feet high over all the earth. The amount of water this would have required is actually difficult to comprehend. I mean, this would have required over 630 cubic miles of additional water, weighing over three quintillion tons. That's a three with 18 zeros after it, by the way. I mean, the oceans would have had to have literally tripled in volume in only 150 days and then quickly shrink back to normal size during the second 150 days. And we know that rain clouds could not even hold one-tenth of one percent of that much water. Even if it could hold that much water, it would result in an atmosphere being 840 times what it currently is, making life as we know it impossible. The bottom line is that to completely cover Earth's surface would require an amount of water that is more than four times the sum of all the water currently present in all of our oceans, our lakes, our atmosphere, and even within the Earth's crust. Now, one of the ways global flood advocates try and argue around this is to claim that before the flood, mountains were no more than a few hundred feet above sea level. Now, scientifically, that's very easy argument to debunk. But even if that were the case, the amount of all the water on the earth is still not enough to cover everything. 
So for many advocates of the global flood model, this shortage of water problem is one of the reasons that led to the canopy theory, which is the hypothesis that a thick canopy of water once surrounded the earth and collapsed at the time of the flood, and that was a major source of the flood waters. Now, I addressed this back in an episode during Creation Week and discussed why this was scientifically debunked by the laws of physics, and it since has fallen out of favor. Also, if one is going to argue that the mountains were only a few hundred feet tall back before the flood, and the flood was the cause of this massive vertical uplift that raised the mountains to the heights they are at now, you have to essentially abandon all known geology and plate tectonics. You have to posit such aggressive plate tectonic activity that it would have made surviving the flood impossible. The reason is due to the fact that the energy required to make these radical alterations in Earth's geography in such a, a brief time, it exceeds by several orders of magnitude what the laws of physics permit. I mean, the, the primary difference between the global flood models and current mainstream geophysical models is that the global flood scenarios squeeze several billions of years worth of tectonic activity into a period of time of less than one year. In other words, they only have one year available to account for all of Earth's tectonic arrangement, the buildup of mountains and the separation of continents, some of those continents separating by as much as five to 8,000 miles. I don't have time to do a complete deep dive into this issue, and, and this is not the proper form for that. But let me just mention that these are not the only issues that a global flood model must address. There are challenges other than just the water shortage problem and, and the implausible plate tectonics. For example, some of those other challenges and issues are the amount of biodeposits in the earth and radioactive decay rates that have to be up to 1 billion times faster than what we observe today the survivability of the aftermath of the flood and the required rapid rate of animal evolution that not even atheistic evolutionary biologists accept or believe in. So at the end of the day, what are we to make of this discussion? I mean, why go through this exercise in the first place? Well, I think it's important because at the end of the day, as Christians, we need to be able to offer a theologically sound, a biblically consistent, and a scientifically plausible interpretation of the flood account. And although God is certainly capable of doing anything, I think the question we need to ask is not what could God have done, but what did he do? I mean, certainly God has performed many miracles that override the laws of physics. The resurrection of Jesus overrides the laws of physics. However, he never removes the evidence for doing so. And there's just no evidence that this is how God did it. God's revelation through the record in nature is trustworthy. It's not deceptive. But by any account, whether this was a regional flood or a global flood, it was a massive event, such as the world has not seen since. However, I do think that the most consistent interpretation is that the flood extended only as far as necessary to impact the entire world as defined by its human population at the time. But as we wrap up this episode, please keep in mind, your salvation doesn't depend on whether you believe the flood was global or regional. In fact, the extent of the flood has nothing to do with your position in Christ. I know plenty of wonderful Christians who hold completely different views concerning the flood, and that's fine. 
Having a correct flood interpretation doesn't get you into heaven. Having the correct relationship with and placing your trust and faith in Jesus Christ gets you into heaven. I mean, it's not like when you die, God has two boxes to check off. One, that you accepted the provision he made for you through the sacrifice of Jesus. And then another that shows that you know you had a correct flood interpretation. No. In Christ alone, through faith alone, we are saved. Probably the most famous verse in all of Scripture, John 3.16. Most people know it, even if they're not believers. It doesn't say, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him and has a correct flood interpretation should not perish but have eternal life. No. Believe in Christ, place your trust in Christ, accept his sacrifice to cover your sins, and you will be saved. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode, and I hope you'll listen in the next week as we begin to take a look at life after the flood. But until then, I will leave you once again with the words of Jesus in Matthew 24:37. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man.